I'm not sure if you've ever seen the image before of the iceberg, and uh, it's kind of a principle for leadership, but it's fitting for today, and I think not only for the text of what Paul's going to lay before us, but also as we come toward the deacon election. And, and the principle is this, that when you see an iceberg, that you're seeing about 10% of the entirety of the iceberg. And the reality is that the other 90% is actually below the surface. You, you don't see that. And so um, today, as we come to look at Paul's life, Paul's going to say, hey, listen, you guys need to know about my former way of life. Uh, he's going to kind of allow us to maybe put on our scuba gear today and go underneath and to see some things. He's going to be sharing his testimony. Paul's going to be talking about his story of what happened there back in Acts 9, that familiar passage to many of you where he was on that Damascus road and he had seen this great light. And so it is as we come to deacon election. Um, Paul does something kind of maybe curious to us, honestly. Um, he, he talks about the call for deacons to be these, literally that indicates a humble servant, so the word indicates. And instead of talking about all these things these guys should be doing, he really talks about their character. It's, I mean, it's kind of opposite of probably what you would think. And so what Paul is telling us is be careful at times when maybe you look at all the things you see above the water. You need to make sure you're looking below the water, looking at the character of the person. And, and so I think Paul provides us this opportunity today again to maybe just put on the scuba gear, to go with him underneath, to look at his life, to walk with him um, about his experience. And so it, it's a beautiful moment. So again, I hope and pray that maybe that imagery of the iceberg, 10% above the water, 90% below is maybe a, a mantra or, or a mindset of which you can see and think through as you walk through the text today here in Acts chapter 22 and also in first Timothy three. So Acts chapter 21, remember Paul has just been arrested. Um, they, they were literally beating him. They had planned to kill him. Um, the Romans had showed up and, and spared him from that. And so we had this in, interaction. They kind of pulled him back into the barracks, away from the mob of the crowd that was trying to literally kill Paul. Um, and listen to what happens. Verse 37 of Acts 21. It kind of closes and prepares us for what's happening in Acts 22. It says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men, the assassins, out in the wilderness? He says, are you this guy we've heard about, right? Are you this crazy guy? Paul replies, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Um, I just want to make maybe a mention of this just for a moment is, is that Paul is spoken in Greek. The Hebrew language most likely is Aramaic, even though there's some disagreement about what Paul language he's speaking here. Um, it's believed that the predominant language of that day would have been Aramaic. That's typically probably what Jesus would have spoke. Um, and so what we have with Paul is, is something here that's kind of important, I think. I think at times people look at Christianity and think that, well, Christians are just really weak-minded people, and you guys need a crutch because you're mentally not strong enough to handle eternity or what happens after death, and so this is kind of you guys' way out. You need a Jesus or whatever to fill that void. And so there's sometimes maybe that mindset that, that Christians are um, not to be academic or not to care about any uh, matters of, of, I guess, maybe deep thought or discussion. And here we have Paul. Paul is now speaking Greek. Most likely he's speaking Aramaic. He's telling you that he was grew up a Pharisee. So that means that he would have known the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew. So you have a guy now who is fluent in three languages. Um, 
in that day and time, most people couldn't even read. So this guy is uh, intellectually, you're talking about the elite of the elite in that day and time. And let's be honest, in our day and time, that would be as well, right? Somebody comes in, knows three languages, speaks three languages. I mean, that's, that's a pretty um, studied person. And so Paul is there. So again, I, I want to, to give that out there because I think some of you live in a world or a culture, you're constantly coming against people in the workplace and they're, they're bombarding you thinking that Christianity is just this weak-minded religion and, um, and that you must be also some kind of foolish person. But we're reminded that... Um, Christianity is not, I guess, again, not, not weak-minded. It's not the fact that we're in need of a crutch. Um, by many well-schooled scholars and others who have examined the text and looked at the, the truthful claims of Christianity, it is truth that there is indeed a Christ who has come, that God has come in the flesh. And this is indeed God's holy word that's been entrusted to us. And so I just want to make mention of that. Um, again, maybe that's profitable to some, but I, th- I do think it's interesting and significant. So let, let's look for a moment. Um, Paul, he begins to talk to him. Look what he says here. Uh, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Verse 2 now of Acts 22, he says, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And the question is, maybe it's a little hard to understand. They're not sure. But again, whatever the case is, Paul speaks the language. The same way when he spoke Greek, it got that, that Roman soldier's attention. Like, whoa, you can speak Greek, right? I mean, like, whoa, what's happening here? Same way now, Paul is there. And so Paul is, he's pulling upon his studies, right? And, and he says, look what he says to them. Paul's going to kind of give you guys a little bit of the background, right? And, and share it with us as well. He says, I'm a Jew, right? So Paul shares immediately, here's my nationality. He says, I was born in Tarsus, so in Cilicia. So Paul tells us where he was born. He says, also, I was brought up in this city. And so what city are they in? Do you remember? They're in Jerusalem, right? So now he's saying, I was brought up in this city. So Paul says, listen, I want you to know that by nationality, I'm a Jew. I want you to know that where I was born was in Cilicia. And he says, now I want you to know also that where I grew up, right, where my stomping ground is, so to speak, um, I grew up in Jerusalem. And now he's going to tell us a little bit about where he studied. He said, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our father. So he tells us where he went to school. Paul now tells us, what did he study? He says, well, I studied the law, right? That's, I looked at the strictest manner of it. And so he says, well, what was the outcome of your studies and all of this in your life, Paul? He says, I was zealous for God as all of you are to this day. Remember, Paul is being challenged because they found him in the temple. They thought he had brought a Greek or a Gentile past the, the, basically um, at, at the outer court of the Gentiles. They thought he had brought him into the temple. And so they were, they were telling Paul, listen, we've heard all about you, that you reject the Old Testament, that you reject the law, you reject the sign of the circumcision, which is a covenant sign. You, you reject all of that. And Paul is saying, no, listen, guys, I, I am a Jew. I grew up studying this. So I want you to know my background is similar to yours. He says, I'm zealous for God as all of you are to this day or at this point right now. And so Paul's sharing with us. Paul believes that to his audience, his background, his family, his experience is important. So it also is going to be when we come to 1 Timothy 3. Paul says, when it comes time to look at deacons, I want you to know that their life, their family, their background is important. So let's, let's look to it just for a moment. 1 Timothy 3, Brother Todd read it, but I want to come now to verse, um, verse 12, and then we're kind of work our way back through the text um, as we walk with Paul on the day. He says, let deacons, literally let these servants each be the husband of one wife, 
managing their children and their own households well. Now, obviously, if you've been much in the church at all, you know that that statement there, the husband of one wife, is probably the most controversial of anything that's in here. Um, And people battle about that. Churches battle over it. And so let's do for a moment kind of looking at that. Paul says, I want you to know when it comes time to elect or, or to appoint these deacon servants in the church, I want you to look at their lives, at their marriage, um, how they manage children, um, how their households are, right? I want you to look at the totality of this person. You know, it's interesting he says the husband of one wife, and we might say, well, why doesn't he just say um, certain things? Why does he say, why didn't he say not divorce? Or why does he say not a polygamist? Or, right? So there's different thoughts. Like, what is Paul getting after here? And there's some disagreement on that. But I think one of the significant things that Paul is doing in the entirety of this list, and he's saying, I want you to look at the moral life of the person, right? Because here, here's, here's kind of one point that might be made is, it's just because someone's in essence faithful to their wife, right? They're faithful to their wife right now. It doesn't mean that they don't have an eye for every other woman they see. So Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, he says, you've been told don't commit adultery, but I tell you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery where? In their heart. So Paul's telling us as we come to this list, realize, guys, I want you to look at this list and think about those in the church and realize there are guys that maybe they're faithful to their their wife, but man... I mean, in regards to being married, but they have eyes for every other woman out there. He's saying, pass on that. Others will come to this and say, listen, as I look at this text here, and it says, each being the husband of one wife. And in Greek, if you saw the word order, literally the one is emphatic, all right? So word order is important in the Greek. And so it would say literally one, one woman man or one husband um, or one wife husband. Um, but he says, listen, also their children their own households well. And so people look at this and say, well, I'm looking at maybe at this individual's life and I'm looking back in the past and I'm seeing some struggles in that area and maybe specifically whether it's with divorce or with the handling of children in their household. And they're saying there's some things there that I just can't get past. I'm okay with that, but here, here's what I do want to let you be aware of. If you look at a lens and say that I look at when I come to let each let the deacon each be the husband of one wife and I go back 30 years to a blemish in this man's past marriage, maybe a previous divorce or whatever. Then to be fair to the entirety of the text, then you need to come and look at the word dignified, not double tongue, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, holding the faith to clear conscience, um, blameless, right, and that's proving that they, they remain faithful there, you need to look at that back the past 30 years. Like, so here's what I'm saying is the tendency often is is to find some of these, whatever maybe it is, uh, that we don't like about somebody or we're concerned about, and we say, well, that happened back 25 years ago, and I can't get past that, but we come to the rest of the list and we look at it only presently. You understand what I'm saying? So if you're going to look at the lens and say, well, I look back um, on the entirety of that person's Christian life. And again, I'm okay if we do that. But I want you to understand if you do that, then you need to also look at the rest of the list over that past 25 years. Or past 30 years or however you're determining that delineation, right? Whether whatever that is, that time period. Because the indication appears to be most of the time we come to this text, we're looking at most of these as present conditions, right? That, hey, maybe there was some time back in the past that this person struggled with drinking, whether it was 15 years ago. They've got past that. And so I'm looking at present conditions. And so my counsel to you would be, well, 
there might be to be consideration of the husband of one wife in similar ways. But again, there's a challenge with it. I, I get it. I acknowledge this is difficult text, tough sledding. My point to you is be faithful. All right, whatever interpretive lens you choose to look at the husband of one wife and the managing their household, you need to look at that same lens, right? That same period of time at the others of these as you consider the lives of other men as well. Right? So hopefully that's, I know that's a challenge. Again, this is hard text. Again, churches battle over it. I get it and understand why, and rightfully so. But I want us to be faithful and biblically um, understanding, I guess, as we come to the text and make some of these interpretive decisions. One thing that I do want to also say as we look at this, and specifically as we're looking at the marriage of the individual, at the managing their household and their children, is that oftentimes that reflects who they are in the church. Um, and it's a fitting thing. But I want us to also be aware of the fact that, that Christ came to change us, guys. We read it, uh, Ms. Watkins read the passage there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I, I'm going to throw it on the screen just for a reminder, just to, re, to remember what Christ has truly come to do. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation, a new creature. The old has what? Passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I don't know about you, but I, for me, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of those circle the wagon texts, like praise God for that. That I could become a new creation. That my old life, the old things have indeed passed away. And so I think when we look at this lens and we're looking, 1 Timothy 3, of who is God raising up to be the deacons of the church, I want us to come and realize that in Christ people are made new. Old things have passed away. The new has come. And praise God for that. And if you're struggling to look at somebody else saying, I, I, well, I, I don't know, I struggle to look at their life. I want, to, I want to remind you that you too once had a past. That you too need that new creation of Christ, that forgiveness, the grace of God. Again, that does it not diminish the calling of 1 Timothy 3. The first calling of 1 Timothy 3 for deacons is a high calling morally. It is a high calling. And I'm not calling us to lower that. But I am saying we need to realize that in Christ people indeed are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And I think that prepares us for Paul. Paul is getting ready to go there right now as he begins to share. So remember, he's just shared a little bit of his background, his story. Now look what he says to them in verse 4 of Acts 22. He's going to tell you a little bit about his previous way of life. I persecuted this way, literally the way, and maybe building on Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. So followers of Jesus were called people that were followers of the way. Right? They were following the only way they believed to heaven. And so it was a, an exclusive claim. He says, I persecuted this way to the death. So people that follow Jesus, I persecuted them to death, Paul said, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He says, you guys here know. You guys know about my previous way of life. From them I received letters, he says, to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus. And now this is kind of where we're picking up in Acts chapter 9. To take those who also were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And so Paul says, listen guys, I want you to know that I persecuted the church. 
I don't want it to be hidden. I don't want anything right. And so I think it's important at times. We just need to be open and transparent. Here's my life. I, I struggled in these areas. Or there's times when I share, hey, guys, even now, I've got struggles in my life, right? I mean, I've shared over the past several weeks things that I struggle with, times when I blow it. Paul struggles with his past. I don't know if you do. I don't know if you experience maybe just some real blunders in your past that you struggle with. But Paul struggles, guys. In 1 Corinthians 15, again, I think it's one of the more important texts we have in the New Testament. Paul shares about the resurrection of Christ. And as he comes to the end of it, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, he says, I don't even deserve to be an apostle. Do you know why? Do you remember what he said? Because I did what? What he's talking about here. He says, because I persecuted the church. Paul says, listen, I want you to know that I've got some real things. I've got some shame. I've got some bondage in my life. I mean, some things that I'm struggling like. I, I don't know. And I think some of us here are in that same place. You have made mistakes 20 years ago, 30 years ago, five weeks ago. I mean, you, and Satan just keeps recalling that. And I just want, again, to present and lay before you the blood of Christ. Indeed, oh, precious is the flow that makes me what? White as snow, no other fountain I know, nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. You need to realize that Christ came to cleanse you and set you free of that. Satan is at war in your mind to keep you to think that you will never get past that past mistake. That is a work of Satan. And I want you to recognize it for what it is and to realize that the blood of Christ is indeed greater Right? That's what Paul says. Where sin abound, what would abound it all the more? Do you remember? Grace. When we look at our lives, we have all abounded in sin. And Paul says, guys, the grace of God, the mercy of God is so much greater than all of my sin and shame. So listen, if you've got struggles, join the crowd, join with Paul and look to Christ. Look to the one who bled and died and said from the cross, it is what? It's finished. Satan doesn't want it to be finished. He wants to keep recalling it up, what you did twenty, what you did back in the service. What you, I mean, he just wants to keep replaying these things from your past. Christ said it's finished. It has been literally paid in full. Let the victory of Christ be your victory. Quit letting Satan steal that joy and the peace that Christ has come to bring through His victory on the cross. Now that's for believers. Some of you here have not come to experience that personally yet because you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want you to know today that you can have freedom from all your sin. You say, Blake, no, what I did was indeed unforgivable. No, what Jesus came and did was to take your unforgivable and He made it forgivable. Because His perfect life satisfied God's judgment once and for all. And if you want to have peace with God the Father, it is only available through the way, and His name is Jesus. It is the hope of the nations, and that's why Paul is here. Because this is a man who has been transformed by Jesus Christ. So he says, guys, I was on my way, verse 6 of Acts 22, and I drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? This is a huge moment in the text. And he said to me, What? Who is it? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, 
whom thou persecutest. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Right? This great light, this, this God who was spoken up and shown to Paul. He says, listen, I was on my way and suddenly it happened. That's what Paul says there in verse 6. I, was, I, I wasn't like I was just going about my business. And some of you, that's your testimony. You were just going about your way of life. You weren't really thinking anything about God. And all of a sudden, boom, the light shone. God showed up in your life, maybe through terrible circumstances or, or through un, un, uh, unforeseen moment in life. Like you weren't planning it. And God just showed up and all of a sudden the gospel starts impacting your life. The love of God, maybe through a certain person, a teacher, a friend, somebody else in your life, a parent, a family. I mean, somebody. And God just began to overwhelm you with his grace and his kindness. Paul says, that's where it was. Verse six there. He says, suddenly I was I was just going on my way. Right. I wasn't thinking about, hey, I need Jesus or whatever. I mean, in fact, I was against anybody that was for him. That seems to be God's way often. In Genesis chapter 12, God would speak to a man by the name of Abram who becomes Abraham and calls him to leave his land and his family and go to the land that I will show you. The later text indicates to us that Abraham's family worshipped all these false gods. And God just shows up to this man and calls him. In Exodus chapter 3, God shows up to this guy who's just herding sheep up on a mountain. His name was what? Do you remember? Moses. And this burning bush shows up and he says, I, I'm calling you to go. I mean, we love the story of Luke chapter 19 when there's this little wee little man. And a wee little man was he and he climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Who was that man? Do you remember? Zacchaeus. I love about Luke chapter 19 that, yeah, he scurried ahead and got there. But it's interesting to me in the text that about verse 5 that it says that when Jesus reached the place where Zacchaeus was, that he stopped and looked up to him. I mean, Zacchaeus just came maybe to see you. Maybe that's where you are. You're just kind of coming to see, interested, maybe wondering about. But there's those moments when suddenly Jesus just kind of stops and he looks at you inside and he begins to speak to you. Like the gospel begins to come alive. There's this like great light that begins to just, just speak and shine light. And you're like, man, I am in need of Jesus for saving my soul. That's where Paul is. And so he says to them, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Verse 9 now of Acts 22. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And in this statement, verse 12. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. Ananias shows up on the scene. He's going to be called to go to this blinded man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, right? And he's going to be called to go and to pray for him. And, and literally, he's, Paul says here, he enters him into his own testimony, his story. I don't know about you, but you probably had some people along the way that were some people that were faithful to God. You, you had godly parents or grandparents or maybe you had a Sunday school teacher or maybe you had a church in that community that, that, that had a bus and, and they, somebody came and got you or somebody came and picked you up or you had a co-worker that would just keep sharing the gospel with you and they were so loving and kind and they just listened to you in the midst of all that you were going through. Paul says, I got a guy that's a part of my life and his name's Ananias. And he says he was well spoken of. And I think that may capture that statement there, well spoken of captures well of what we're looking for when we think about 
deacons. And so I want to return again to that text for a moment. He says, verse 8, join me in 1 Timothy 3. Deacons, again, this word literally, humble servants, likewise must be dignified. Literally, they're to be worthy of respect. Um, he's going to say that uh, in verse 2, talking about pastors, he calls them to be above reproach. In verse 7, he says they have a good reputation with outsiders. Um, he speaks about the women or, or maybe the wives, indeed. There's some, some disagreement on what exactly has happened in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 3. But he says these wives are to also be dignified. They're also to be faithful in all things. And so, literally, I think when we think about this word dignified, we're talking about a life that is godly and holy. That people respect that person. That who they are inside these walls on Sunday mornings, who you'll see them out in the community on Tuesday, when you encounter somewhere else on Thursday, who they are behind closed doors. This person is a person that is worthy of respect. Further, he says, they're not to be double-tongued. All right, and so he's going to talk about this again in a minute with wives as well. He's saying literally they're not to be slanders, and he uses the word diablo, which we get devil from. And he says, listen, these people aren't to be double-tongued. What's he saying? He's saying you shouldn't speak something to this person over here, and then when things get awkward, you run over here to this person and say something else. Like you pat this person on the back, tell them what they want to hear, and then run to this person and tell them what they want to hear. Or maybe you're creating gossip or dissension. He says, listen, that's not what the deacons are to be. They are not to be the dis- Dividers in the church, double-tongued. In fact, why? Because we see in Acts 6, it's presumed to be the first deacons. Those guys are handling division in the church. The Greek Jews and the Hebraic Jews are arguing why. Because they're saying, you're not looking after our widows and you're not looking after our widows. And they said, well, let's raise up seven men who are full of wisdom and the Spirit. Let's give them this responsibility, this ministry. And literally, they come in to help not only meet needs physically, yes, But they are to be unifiers. And so you would realize that a person that's double-tongued that says one thing to this group of widows and now to this group of widows would not help bring peace and unity. And so Paul says, listen, those guys right there, that they're not to serve in that position. Further, he says they're not to be addicted to much wine right there in verse 8, indicating again that their lives have self-control, that these men are not drunkards. They're not addicted to wine. And so he lays it out there before us. Furthermore, he says, well, listen, these guys also are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Why? Well, because that day and time, often the the deacons would be handling many needs, physical needs of people in the church. We're going to see it in a minute, maybe some things that might possibly have been done. And and what would happen is they would have control of of church resources. They were responsible for how to spend money to, to help provide for physical needs. So if these people couldn't be trusted or they might be greedy, right? I mean, we had it, I think, in our text this morning in John chapter 12 when we finished in Sunday school. And, and, and Mary's there anointing Jesus' feet. Remember, she takes that nanard and she points it all over or pours it all over Jesus' feet, preparing him for burial. And do you remember who got upset about that? Who did? Judas. And you remember what the text tells us? John just makes this little snippet, but it's a very important moment. He said, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, right? He says, Lord, couldn't this money have been sold for 300 denarii and given like this would be more than a year's wages? We could have helped all these poor people. John says, he said that. He said that. But he said, Judas didn't say that because he really cared about the poor. He said it because Judas kept the money bag and he liked to do what? Do you remember? He liked to put a little in there for daddy. I'll take that. I'll take that. Daddy needs a new pair of shoes. He says, deacons are not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Why? Because they're going to have some trusted resources at times. They're going to be making financial decisions on how to help people and to minister in moments. 
And so we've got to have men that are not chasing the mighty dollar. Men that are not dishonest or doing shameless business deals out in, the, in, their, maybe their, in their public life. Um, and so he says, listen, I want you to know these men, the church is trusting these men. They're going to be committing resources financially. Further, he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. All right, so the conscience was kind of the seat of the wheel. And so um, he's literally saying there that not only must they agree intellectually, like with the doctrines of the faith, and you're going to see that kind of there in verse 10, let them, let them be tested, right? Examine them. Do they believe the truth about Jesus and the truth of God's word? But this clear conscience indicates not only do they agree intellectually, their lives are in agreement. Right? There's a clear conscience. There's a way in which they live. They don't simply just say one thing and do something else. Their lives are matching their lips. And so this clear conscience is there. Well, Paul says that he came to me, verse 13, Ananias, and he says to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. No, Ananias is getting ready about exit the scene here in just a few moments. And in fact, we don't hear about him much. And maybe this is one of the few moments when Paul raises him up in his testimony. But guess what? Ananias was called to come and he was called to speak. And he did it faithfully. That's what we're looking for. When you think about a humble servant, someone that has been called to come, who has been called to be a responsible person to do this. Why? What are some things maybe as you think about the word deacon, right? This humble servant. What are some things they might do? Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus makes a very, very important statement um, that I think applies here. And he says, verse 44, Matthew 25. Then they also will answer, he's talking about the final judgment when people stand before him. Lord, when did we see you hungry? So deacons, helping meeting physical needs of food. Or thirsty, helping provide water. These are just practical needs of people. Or a stranger. Maybe the deacons are helping welcome and bring hospitality. They're looking out for people that are outsiders. They're finding ways. Or naked, or they're saying, hey, we've got some people in church that have some physical needs. How can we help provide for them? There's people maybe in this church that maybe you don't even aware of it that are struggling. They need help with bills or other things. Maybe you step up and say, how can I be a part of that? They're caring for those who need clothing, those who need physical needs. Or the sick. The deacons are thinking, how can I go minister to this person that's sick? How can we be praying for them? Has anybody checked on them? Who cares about those that are hurting, our widows, others, or those that are in prison? And maybe that the prison oftentimes are people that are forgotten. They're left over. They're looked over. And so deacons, I think, why? You say, well, why are you applying this to deacons? Well, literally, he says, and did not minister to you. The word minister there, if you read in the Greek, indicates it's the same word that's used for the word deacon. It's diakonos. He's saying, listen, this is the type of serving that's to be happening. Physical needs, spiritual needs, practically being there, not overlooking people. People that maybe others would step beside, I mean, over. These guys are called to care for them. So I think this is a great way of looking through this lens to say, okay, those are some things. Just practically, who are some guys that are just living this life day to day, week to week, year to year? So you might ask, well, with Paul specifically here in his story is, is that Paul, why you and not somebody else, right? Maybe you've ever wondered that. Like you were examining the life of Paul and you might wonder like, why am I here? Right? Like, why am I in this family? Like, why am I on that job? Why am I in this community? Right? Like, why did everything change? And now this is, is happening in my life. I think Paul, this provides a great example to us. Look what he says. Ananias speaks to him further in verse 14 of Acts 22, and he says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. So this is, this is God's appointment, right? So God's appointing here. And he says several things here. He says he wants you to know his will, to see the righteous one, which is Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth. 
Why? You may wonder why. Well, here it is again. These are just clues. Verse 15. Four. Right? He's going to tell you, why did all this happen? And I think, again, this has great application. If you are in Christ and you're wondering, why am I in Christ and not my brother isn't? Or why am I in Christ and my friend at work isn't? Or why am I in Christ and my cousin isn't? Like, I can't figure all this out. I think Paul has some really practical application here for you uh, in the life of, as he speaks, sharing that story of Ananias, what Ananias shared with him. So look what he says here. For you will be, what? A witness for him. That's a Jesus. To who? Everyone, somebody else have something else, translation, all, did you say all people? All men, all people, right? So you'll be a witness for him to everyone of what? Of what you have seen and heard. So if you've ever wondered, like, why me? Why am I, like, why me? Why not other people? I don't get it. Paul says, listen, what was shared with me was, is that God wanted to use me to share with everyone about what I'd seen and heard. So I'm asking you, as you sit here and don't just say, well, God, thank you that I'm in Christ. Say, Lord, praise you that I'm in Christ. But Lord, now how can I go share with everyone about what I've seen and heard? And here's an interesting question you'd ask yourself. If there's not much sharing with people about what you've seen and heard, we may need to ask the question, have you really seen and heard? I mean, in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, the seen and heard is the exact language that Peter and John use. They said, listen, you guys need to decide if it's right for you to obey God or or to obey men rather than God. But as for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They said, we can't help it. I mean, Christ has done something. You don't understand. This guy has saved me. He's given me a perfect standing before God. He's given me hope that I will experience a new life where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. You don't understand. He gives me joy in the midst of my sorrow. I know I may be in the pit today, but there is joy in my life that God will never forsake me. I know that brighter days are coming. I've just got to hold on to Him even when I can't see. You see, he says, we've seen and heard that, Peter and John said. Now Paul says, I've seen and heard that. I can't help but speak about that. So I want to ask you, if there's no desire to share, have you really seen and heard? Have you experienced the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring? And then he asks a very pointed question. Ananias looks at Saul and he says, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And that's a question I have maybe for some of you. You've professed that you have trusted Jesus Christ. You have called on his name, right? You're professing that you've experienced your sins being washed away only by the blood of Jesus by putting your faith and trust. I want to ask you a question. If you have not gone forward to publicly be identified with Christ and his death, burial and resurrection, I want to ask you the question that Ananias asked to Paul. What are you waiting for? Are you ashamed? Again, I don't know if there's anybody here that that applies to at all. But if you are truly a follower of Christ, if you have claimed the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have called on his name for salvation, are you ashamed to be united with him publicly? I get it. I know some people may have fears about water or others. I I hope that there's a greater fear of standing before God and not being faithful to what he's called you to do that overcomes any other fear that you face. And so I just want to again ask you, and listen, we need to probably apply this to other areas of our life of things that God's calling some of you to do. What are you waiting for? We don't have time today to walk through the remainder of the text, but maybe I just want to overview it. Um, Verses 17 through 30. 
So Saul's going to share, or Paul, sorry, he's going to share um, just for a few moments about how he had this, this, this further conversation with God and, and, and talk to Jesus about the fact that, hey, listen, I'm going to go and tell people. They'll know about my previous way of life. They'll surely believe me. And he says, listen, they're not going to believe you. Get out of here. Go to the Gentiles. And the moment the crowd hears that he's going to the Gentile, these Jewish people revolt again. They go bananas on Paul. And they begin to shout, throw cloak off. They're, they're flinging stuff in the air. Um, and so the tribune now brings him in, verse 24, and it says that they're going to literally have him flogged. And just as they're stretching Paul out, right, they're going to be stretching him out where they can get his back and other parts exposed. You're thinking back to the, what Jesus Christ experienced, the flogging. Paul makes a statement in verse 28 that I think is very interesting that I want to close with. And look what he says here. The tribune answers. He asks him, he says, well, verse 27, tell me, Paul, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes. And the tribune answers, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, verse 28 of Acts 22, but I am a citizen by what? Birth. And his citizenship saved him the flogging. I want to call you to a birth not as an American, to a birth not as in your family of origin. I'm calling you to what Jesus says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. You will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you are what? Born again. I'm calling you to a new birth in Jesus Christ that will spare you not just a physical flogging here on earth, but will spare you the wrath and judgment of God in hell for all eternity. And the only claim that you will have is on that day and time, because there will be one there to accuse you, that slanderer Satan, he's, that's what his name's literally known for, accuser, slanderer of the brothers and sisters. You see it in Revelation, that's what he's doing. He'll be there to accuse you, and guess what? He's going to be right. You are guilty. The question is, will you have been born again and have one who will step in and say, that's true, he or she is guilty? But I paid for that in full. Father, look at those nail-scarred hands. Father, Father, I experienced your judgment for them. And the Father will look upon the Son and then look to you and say that you have indeed been born again. You will not experience my judgment for all eternity. Come in, my faithful servant, and experience what Jesus won for you on Calvary. That is the hope. And that's what Paul is there saying. I'm a Roman. It's going to spare me this flogging. But there is a much greater birth to claim. And it's the one of being born again by the blood of Jesus Christ that will spare you God's judgment for all eternity. Can you claim that birth? Can you claim it? It's our only hope, guys. It is the joy that fills our soul. It is what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, literally declared innocent before God by faith, he says we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want peace with God? It's only available through Jesus. And there's nothing you've done that's too bad to keep you from it. Would you come today repenting of your sins, saying, God, my way of life is wrong. Your way is right. God, I'm praying that you would change me, that you would send forth your spirit. I want forgiveness and a new life in Jesus. Unless you repent, brothers and sisters, you too will perish. But be encouraged. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 
That's his goal. That's his joy. Would you respond to it today? Father, in the strong name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for Jesus and what he has done. I thank you, God, for the joy of being born again, to have all of our sin covered, to truly be a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Father, to know that indeed, God, when we stand before you, Satan is going to have accusations to bring. And Lord, unless there's a pardon, we're going to be guilty. But thank you for Jesus. Oh, man, thank you for him who steps in. Thank you for the one who ever lives to intercede for us. Thank you that, God, we have a testimony, a hope that is on high, that is in the heavenlies. Thank you that temple is, that curtain is torn. And, God, in the presence of you, the perfect and holy Father, where no sin may dwell, that you would accept sinners like us because of your Son, Jesus. God, hallelujah to your name. Glory to the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. He is the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. And I pray, my brothers and sisters here, God, bring people to the gospel today. Open our eyes. May there be some light dawning just like Saul on that road. God, may you move the hearts of the people. And Lord, I pray for those that are in Christ. They'll go everyone and tell everyone everywhere. I've got to tell you about what I've seen and heard. What's happened to me? Jesus has changed me and set me free. Give our people boldness. Give us clarity. Give us your, your peace, your will, your direction as we come to look at this deacon election. God, I pray that you would just lead in God. And that you would make known, God, in the hearts of these people, the men that you have raised up. I thank you, Lord, for this day and again for the opportunity to share the greatest news ever with these folks. The love of Christ. I love you, Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.